The Charlotte Ledger Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Hey, it's Tony Macia with the Charlotte Ledger, and you're listening to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger by going to thecharlotteledger.com. Today's podcast is part of a special series we're doing in which we interview winners of the Charlotte Ledger's 40 Over 40 Awards. The recipients are people ages 40 and up who are making a big difference in the Charlotte area. People who saw a need and took action. You can find out more at ledger40over40.com. The host of today's podcast is Steve Dunn. and his day job, he's a mediator who offers dispute resolution services through the Charlotte Office of Miles Mediation and Arbitration. Enjoy. Welcome to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. I'm Steve Dunn. I'm joined today by Brian Heffron, a man who wears many hats, uh, loosely described as the owner of the Comedy Zone, but it's more complicated than that. Uh, His endeavors include a talent agency, a comedy club, and licensing deals around the country. Brian, when people talk to you about your work, do they overestimate, underestimate, or correctly estimate just how glamorous it is? I believe that people think what I do is basically watching comedy and laughing. And I try not to break that illusion too much, but it is far from that. Did you grow up as a comedy lover? Is that how you got it in the first place? I did. Has being involved in the industry killed your joy and robbed your enjoyment of comedy, or do you still get a thrill from it every day? I don't think it has has killed the joy of it, I think what it is, is it's confused me to the point where I cannot watch it as a consumer. I can only watch it as the business end. I do, however, derive a ton of joy out of watching others, you know, kind of have a great time. And there's something about a whole room just laughing and pounding on tables that still is perfect for me. When I watch the actual art form, it's becoming more and more confusing because it's just so much over the years that I'm I'm in my mind asking, you know, why did you say that? And why did you pause there? And you should have added that word. And have you thought about going in this direction? And and then you go down the rabbit hole and and the 30 minutes is over. It's a fascinating form of art. It's a it's a solo performance. The performer is all alone. You can't you're not relying on any other players or any kind of sets or usually no props. It's just one person and a microphone and charged with the specific task of making people laugh, which is something that a lot of people, I think, think that they can do effortlessly, but when you're trying to do it on purpose, you find it's uh, it's a very different thing. And you refer to the pause and the choice of a word, and, and it may be an underappreciated part of the art form that all of those choices are very intentional and very practiced, but when done well, come across as very natural. And, and so as somebody who's been uh, a consumer of this and has been in the, involved in the business, seen literally thousands of comics perform over the years, I wonder what you think about the, the art form itself and how it's changed over the years. Well, the first, the first jumping off point on what I do and what I'm proud of is that we, I believe, are the last place for true free speech. And, and that carries an enormous amount of responsibility on my part and my staff's part and the comedian's part, because really, if you want to t- to learn about our society and, and truly get a reflection of our society and have a mirror held up to us, go see a comic. 
because a comic is the last place you're going to hear unfiltered view of what is going on around you from every angle. It can it can be silly, it can be political, it can be whatever. And that's kind of cool to watch that happen live. It's almost like you when when people come to a comedy show, you you arrive in, and you're admitted into this little club that says we're going to talk about things now. And everybody outside with their torches and whatnot and, and yelling and screaming, they're not allowed in. We're going to talk about this tonight. Um, I don't think anybody will ever understand how hard it is to do what they do. I think it's 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 easy to have to make a hypothesis that yes, it's probably a lot of work, but it is very difficult. We we used to teach a class for eight weeks with with multiple teachers, and people would spend hours and and their dive their whole life into it. At the end of eight weeks, they got three minutes, and most of the three minutes were awful. And and it's because it's hard, you know. I mean, if you watch any of the documentaries on people that put together an hour, you know, it's 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 endless time thinking about the expression you made or the paused, like you said, the wrong word. Why didn't that work? Why didn't that work? Then you change one word and it worked. And 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 so I'm I'm in awe and admiration of the people who do it well. Honestly, it's a great point about the comedy club being a space in which we can talk about difficult issues freely. And this this is a tradition that goes back to like the, the court jester, right? The, the the clown whose whose role is to speak the truth, but sort of sugarcoat it in a way with humor so that it can be accepted. And, and with in the in the humorous spirit we, in allowing ourselves to laugh at ourselves, open ourselves up to insight, right? And that's a that's a key role of the comic, right? But it's a ha, have you noticed a change in the way that that's received? Like I, I know that I've I've heard some folks suggest that it's a tougher environment out there. Like it's hard to play colleges, for example, because people are getting shouted down. Like there's this notion out there, people are resisting the idea of laughing at themselves or having that kind of free exchange. Yeah, it's the environment has not changed much inside of the club walls except for politics. Everything else is is a go, but you can see almost everybody stay away from taking a side at this point because you're going to immediately alienate half the room. Now, most of the bigger comics that I book, you know what you get. So if you go see Trey Crowder or if you go see Dave Landau, you know what you're going to get. And and that's cool. But if you're just a road comic, as they call them, somebody whose job is it to make a crowd of people laugh, they're, they're, they stay way away from that one particular lightning rod. Everything else, let's go. Now, I, I read somewhere that you've done everything in the business except get up on stage with a microphone in your hand. Is that right? Have you, you've, you've never done uh, your, a no. three-minute set? No, no, no. No, no open mic night no, no, ever? No, 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 no. That, that's amazing. All right, so... Uh, so what is your what does your day consist of, right? It sounds like there's there's kind of three branches on this tree. You've got the talent agency, you've got the club itself, which is over in the music- Se- several clubs. Yeah, well, the okay, yeah. Are you talking about the ones that are sort of around the region or in Charlotte? It's is it just the one in Charlotte? Just or? in Charlotte, yep. we have the one. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, and then you've got you license and work with clubs around the country. And so, on what's a typical day for you? So. There's a lot of to-do lists. My day is broken up into three parts, which is prior to Los Angeles waking up, 
has one entire universe with it. And a lot of that is planning for L.A. waking up. And then when L.A. wakes up, everything shifts to a lot of um, booking. So we book thousands of acts a year. I think it's like 5,000. And so I'm responsible for anybody who has an agent and a manager. So there's a lot of negotiation. There's a lot of, hey, this person has to move because of this movie. There's a lot of negotiation over money. Interwoven in there is marketing. I have to sell all these to the public and make sure that the public is aware of who's where in anywhere in the country, making decisions regionally. Will this person work in Florida? Even though they worked in Pennsylvania, that doesn't mean they work in Florida. I have a wonderful, incredible team that is supporting me and, and, and having an exchange of information when it comes to these booking models. Now we've added in the digital footprint. So a lot of these metrics are determined by how many subscribers do they have? How many views do they have? How many whatever followers do they have? And so a lot of the afternoon is spent with that. And then, of course, as soon as the office goes home, the clubs open. And so everything else becomes now becomes a, a question of, you know, personnel issues and inventory issues. And there is a leak. And so who's going to fix that toilet? And, and so <clears throat> it's it's round the clock and it's and I wouldn't have it any other way. But it really is <clears throat> incredibly fulfilling because no minute is the same as the previous minute. And that's really my DNA. I, I never really had an office. I've always had one. It's just a place to stack a lot of crap up on. I, I, I don't like routine. I like to see something fresh through new eyes and try to grow every day with, a, with these type of variables constantly hitting me. Well, you've got the Comedy Zone in Charlotte, which is an institution in itself. You've got other clubs around the region. And we just opened Cherokee, North Carolina on July 5th, I believe. So we're just getting that one off the ground. And then I own Stand Up Live in uh, Huntsville, Alabama. And we have a club in the Bahamas. Yeah, You've been around a while. You've been doing this for a while. Yeah, you probably developed some views about how it works and how it ought to work. What's the secret sauce that makes a comedy club a good place, both for the audience to experience the art form, but also a place where performers want to perform? Well, from an aesthetic standpoint, I learned this from a good friend named D.L. Hughley, who when I was finally building this club in Charlotte, I had started out on Independence Boulevard, if anybody remembers that, from 100 years ago. Then it was Athan College for the 2010s, and then I moved uh, to the North Carolina Music Factory. It was low ceiling. Start with the low ceiling and then go from there. Comedy is be meant to be consumed in an intimate atmosphere where the laughter can be contained. And every comic that comes to my clubs now in the last you know 10 or 15 years whether it's Greensboro, Greenville, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Jacksonville, Port Charlotte, they're all designed for the comic in mind, not the customer in mind. By proxy, the customer gets an incredible show. But if that comic is feeling hot up there and it's smoking room, and, the, and I just had it happen with Maj Dabrani, if anybody remember, knows him, he's an Iranian comedian who was just at the club. He's like, my God, that first laugh just bowls you over. He's like, love this club. It's the low ceiling. And that's it from an aesthetic standpoint. Obviously, anything else that the customer experience is number one. We're going to treat it just like a top-notch restaurant. We're going to have the you know best chairs, best customer service, best uh, temperature in the room. You're going to have cleanliness and, and all of that good stuff. But the real 
kicker is spend the money on the right comics. You know, I've been around a long time, and every failed club I've ever seen puts the comedian, the comedian cost or the comedian level of talent last. It should be first. You should sacrifice everything you have in order to get the greatest people that do this job on that stage. The rest of it will take care of itself. So I've never been afraid of spending the money. How does it work on a given night? You you typically you, you have a headliner who does a set that's a certain length, and you got you got folks that are kind of you, you got somebody who's up and coming, maybe who's from from like the host to all the way to the headliner. Talk us through a typical night at the club. If you have a qualified MC, which in in, in the larger cities we have a a pool of these folks that understand the the MC game. It's not about being funny. It's about being an MC. And it's about welcoming the crowd. It's about getting the energy level you want. It's about handing off a hot microphone to a comic, getting the crowd in a position where they're ready to laugh. That's the true job of the MC. Now, they're all up-and-coming comedians, so you want them to be funny, clean funny. Nobody's dirty up front. Uh, MC is anywhere five to ten minutes doing housekeeping, also announcements, who's coming up. Please keep your table conversations down, yada, yada. Then you have a feature act, usually a, a well-seasoned touring act that will do 30 minutes. It's really the easiest spot to be in because the audience doesn't expect a lot from you. So you can kind of, you know, I always tell features, if you're not killing as a feature, we may need to rethink this because it really is the easy spot. And then the headliner, what everybody's there to see. There's really two different things in this world. There's a headliner and there's a closer. And there's a significant difference. You know, a headliner is when people pay money to come see you. And that's a different responsibility than a closer. And the closer is when you're the last person on the bill. And so we have a lot of those shows, particularly in PACs and performing arts centers around the country. We have to have a great, great comedy shows with people that necessarily the audience doesn't know. But these are 20-year seasoned veterans that are going to give you a standing ovation, but they close the show. The headliner is... Every single person in that room has been dying to see this person, and it's their favorite comedian. And that carries with it a different responsibility also. And certainly being a closer is one of the most difficult things you have to do. 45, 50 minutes, you don't know them, they don't know you, make me laugh. Brutal. But there are some absolutely astoundingly amazing people that can do this. And it just hasn't been their time yet, and a lot of times it will be. What is the uh, career arc of a comic, right? I, I would gather you start uh, maybe doing open mic nights, and then uh, if if it goes as well as it can possibly go, it ends with feature films or TV series, or you're a late night talk show host or something like that. But I imagine uh, you know the vast majority of folks peter out somewhere in between, and I just wonder what are the levels and who are the folks that you deal with. I think I think what is always the baseline of comedian's career is that there is no shortcut okay you cannot take a shortcut from the beginning to the end the people that have in the past have usually flamed out michael richards and whatnot these are people that tried to get a to to skip the line you got to go on the road you got to pay your dues you got to learn it you got to learn what it's like to bomb in a bar you got to learn what it's like to be booed off in a hotel room in a hotel uh, lounge because it takes 10 years and there's really no way around that before you you find your inner voice, you find your POV, your point of view. In, in, in every comic I've ever worked with, at 10 years something happens with them and they just start to understand themselves. 
then from where we go from there, it's up to just like anything else in life, your work ethic, your drive, your ability to stay fresh, your ability not to lose it mentally, your ability to stay away from addiction and, 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 and those type of problems. Most people these days, particularly in the last 15 or 20 years, hook onto a larger act and you will tour as their support. And that kind of gives you exposure to a lot of new areas and a lot of new clubs, clubs that you probably couldn't get into yet, maybe even some bigger theaters. You're on podcasts. You're near the star. And that, if you, you know, I'm sure you guys, the Rogan, Rogan and, and all of the big podcasts have developed their own acts out of the podcast. So Rogan is the, is the perfect example of breaking a lot of people. That deserve to be broken, but that's usually the arc right now. Film and television, yes, I think everybody kind of has that in their mind, but once you're a real comic, you're always a real comic. Jerry still does 200 dates a year. He's a billionaire, and and it's because they it's in their blood. It's always in their blood. Jay Leno works out every weekend at, at Flappers, and, and it's just part of them. They never really leave it. It, it is who they are. I didn't. I didn't know that about either one of those guys. That's incredible. All of them do. Kevin. I just watched the documentary the other night called "Dying Laughing." It was amazing, and Kevin was like, "I got to do this. I, like, it's who I am. I have to be on stage." Kevin, Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart. I saw a, a documentary about Kevin Hart. I don't know if it was the same one, but I I came over, or it may have been a podcast interview with. It may have been Rogan. I don't know. I don't know. He was on somewhere. I heard Kevin Hart talking about what he does, and I came away with it thinking that guy has. The hardest work ethic I think I've ever heard oh, of yeah. anybody. They I mean, are, they all do at that level, and I work with them all. And they they literally are people are always you know like this that with the other in the ego. And these are the hardest working lunch pail people. I mean, it's Adam Sandler still tours. I mean, these are people that do not need to tour, but they want to be creative, and it's an extraordinarily special art form. I mean, I don't know if we can make a comparison to a musician. And whatever rush that is, because maybe the comedian has a little bit more leeway of changing as the world changes with it. So if you're still out there playing satisfaction, that's great. But a comedian can wake up tomorrow and and put his or her spin on the world and it becomes fresh and new. And I mean, it's incredible. It's an incredible art form. I get to witness it every day. And I'm so grateful for that. Well, in addition to all the business interests you have and the success you've experienced over the years, you're also involved in an organization called Laugh for a Cure. What's that? My wife, Tammy, and I started it 22 years ago here in Charlotte, and we happened to have our fair share of breast cancer in our family, so that was our chosen model. She was already heavily involved with Komen and the, the walk, or Race for the Cure at the time, 2000 maybe, and... I just remember having a conversation outside of a Wolfman pizza and she was like, you know, I'm, I want to do more. And I said, well, I have a comedy club and the conversation started. And what we found was that comedy and fundraising go really, really, really well together. I think if anybody's attended a fundraiser, there's all different types of fundraisers, but for the most part, you're there to give money to other people. And we provide a top notch comedy show and people leave with an attitude and a message that is empowering. And so every March we do our Laugh for the Cure here in Charlotte. We have done them in nine other cities all the way out to Spokane, Washington. We've raised over $4 million through and working with the Coleman organization. 
Is that how people can find you through Komen? If if, if somebody wants to donate or get involved as a volunteer? Yep. Any Google search of Lab for the Cure will show up and tell you where where and how it works. Well, you've been you've been around for a while. The Comedy Zone itself is over thirty years now, right? That's right. It was started in nineteen eighty six by a guy named Brad Greenberg, and I became partners with him in the early nineties. Subsequently, started to purchase him out from ninety six to ninety nine. Well, we are we're we're here with the Charlotte Ledger podcast. The so Charlotte Ledger is a proud citizen of Charlotte and interested in all things Charlotte. You are part of an important Charlotte institution, but you're now living in Hickory. And so I wonder, viewing Charlotte through the lens of someone who's moved out of Charlotte, but still comes around very regularly, I wonder what motivated that decision and what your observations are of both of those places. We were just talking about this the other day in that for a good bit, a good bit of amount of time, I knew every business person in this town that was in my business in terms of alcohol, food, and entertainment. We were all friends. And it has changed so dramatically in a great way. And and if I was 25, I would be in Charlotte all day long. It's an amazing, wonderful, incredible city. At 56, you do see people, you know, reach for their mace when you walk downtown. And so I grew up in western New York. My wife grew up in western Pennsylvania. And we were kind of getting back to our roots of, you know, the woods and the hiking and the, the, the slower lifestyle. Uh, making a decision of when we want to jump back into the raging river, not living in it and trying to step out of it periodically. It was most probably a product of our age, but Charlotte has exploded well beyond what I ever thought it would be. I feel very grateful that we're still part of this kind of old school institutional Charlotte and people are still supporting us. But I just think it's time for other people to run Charlotte in, 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 in a million different ways other than my little contribution. What's your plan then? Are you, are you slowing down or are you going to keep plugging away or are we going to see you lurking around the bar of the Comedy Zone for the foreseeable future? There's no plan to stop right now. I just opened a new club You know, after telling everybody for five years, that's it, no more clubs. I'm an opportunist. I like to be stimulated by new things. So I tend to wait for the opportunity to come my way, and I certainly have a lot of them. It may not be straight up, you know, clubs and whatnot anymore, but I'm super excited to to work with East Coast and growing their footprint in comedy, which they had none when I got when we merged. So there's enormous amount of opportunity there. There's a lot of digital things happening that I'm keeping an eye on, from the metaverse to everything, and going where are we going with all of this. I actually spent some money on a consultant out of Australia to 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 kind of take a deeper look at what is entertainment going to be look look like. You know, if you're 10 years old right now, you may be consuming comedy at a completely different level or a level we haven't even thought about by the time you're 20. And so I I'm I'm endlessly curious about everything. So I'm 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 kind of excited to see where this is going to go and. Does the traditional stand-up model hold up, or do it, does it change? Are we going to get into holograms? There's all sorts of talk about hologram shows and people that have passed already. And so all of that adds up to me for hopefully the foreseeable future to keep me engaged. Well, Brian Heffron, it seems like you got a streak of that work ethic that runs through the comics that you work with. You got a little bit of that in yourself, and you're bringing it to the work that you do. 
I am so thankful that you spent time with us today on the Charlotte Ledger podcast. It's my pleasure. And I'm super grateful. And thank you for having me. That's it for today. The Charlotte Ledger podcast is produced by Lindsay Banks. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger at thecharlotteledger.com. And you can find out more about our 40 Over 40 awards at ledger40over40.com. Queen City Podcast Network.com. Oh.